0: Hello. Yes. Now it's on. Is it on. Yeah, that's good. I've got this bug, the Southern Dharma bug. <laughs> right. It's going down to single digits tonight, so we long John's to bed. Wendella Last evening we are talking about volitional activity, um, karma, and action, and fruit of action, karma vipaka. And this um, volitional activity, the actions which we do perform through speech and, and body, um, creates certain impressions upon the mind, which are called uh, sankharas. They're mental formations and you can imagine them as lines of energy within the consciousness itself. And these lines of energy or sankaras, these impressions within the consciousness, they're called karma formations. And the karma formations within the consciousness condition what's known as rebirth consciousness. Rebirth consciousness is that aspect Um, of previous life that is transferred into the body and the mind of this lifetime so the karma Formations um, condition Rebirth Consciousness. Um, That Rebirth Consciousness um, uh, arrives in the womb of the Mother, of our Mother, and conditions Um, our body and our mind, the kind of mind that we have. And those people who watch their minds, who look at their minds, oftentimes see that the way that their minds are formed in this lifetime is not really traceable necessarily. The kinds of thoughts that you have, the way that your mind works right now is not necessarily traceable to any specific cause in this lifetime, especially certain tendencies of mind. And where do those tendencies of mind come or impulses of the mind, oftentimes from a previous life, rebirth consciousness, the kind of formations in the mind from previous lives? So, karma formations condition the rebirth consciousness. The rebirth consciousness conditions um, the kind of body and mind that we presently have. And whether you believe in past lives or not is quite beside the point because one thing for sure is that we do have a body and a mind right now and if you wish to look at dependent origination which is part of what I'm going to be speaking about this evening or conditionality causal arising how one thing conditions another if you want to start at the point of body and mind rather than karma formations rebirth consciousness Um, if you just want to start from the point that's most obvious to you right now, which is your body and which is your mind, that which you can see and feel in this immediate moment, um, that's the most important thing anyway. The other, it could be, is just open to conjecture and, and belief anyway. So, we'll start with the point that of our body and our mind right now. Um, our body and our mind conditions the six senses The six senses being what we see, the visual, or hearing is another sense, Um, the olfactory perception, the nose, the taste within the mouth, which we experienced in our eating meditation today, and tactile sensations in the body, feeling in the body, tactile sensations. That's, That's five. And then the sixth sense is the mind itself. So, in Eastern perspective, there are six senses, not just five. Um, ordinarily, we grow up thinking of only five senses. When I, I teach a weekly meditation group in Durham, and we hold the class at, uh, at the uh, Friends Meeting House, and they have an early school right behind the meeting house. And we had to have our class one time in that building, and uh, on the wall, was listed the five senses. You know, seeing, hearing, tasting, um, uh, smelling, and feeling or touching. But the sixth one wasn't there. It's an important sense. As you can see, when you look at yourself in meditation, the mind is an extraordinarily important sense to be aware of. Um, And hopefully, as the educational system within this country starts to change, and it will. It's adopting a lot of what is Eastern, in terms of philosophy, that um, the mind, the study of the mind, um, will take on more importance. So, body and mind conditions the six senses, and the six senses condition the next thing in the line of dependent origination, which is the contact within the mind. Contact. Um, it's when you see something, okay, there is the object at, to which you're looking at. So I'm looking at a body right here. So there is an object that I'm looking at. hope you don't mind being an object for a moment I didn't. I didn't choose a woman because that would be much too sexist. <laughs> I get in trouble that way. <laughs> so there is a form here, there is an object. There is the sense door. Okay, there is the I. I E Y E, not I, but I. So there's the I and then there is the object and there is consciousness, awareness that's always that's present as well. So those three things, the object, the sense door and consciousness the knowing, aware faculty of the mind, all three are present, so in this moment there is seeing consciousness. You know, I'm seeing lull, so there's seeing consciousness. Last night when the wind was blowing through the mountains here very strongly, there is a sound of the rushing of the air around us. So there is an object to which we're aware that, that's there, there's the wind. There is the sense door of the ear, and as you're sitting in meditation, you're aware, of course. So there's hearing consciousness. this today, when we were doing the eating meditation, had the raisin in your hand, you placed it in your tongue. And then, so there was the object, which was the raisin. There's the sense door, which is the tongue. There was a very refined awareness. Uh, Present, and so there was eating. There was eating consciousness, or there was taste consciousness that was present. The same thing with the mind. As you're sitting in meditation, and thought arises within your mind. Right? There's that mind object that arises within the mind. So there's contact that takes place in the mind. Contact is the mind itself, which is a sense door. The arising of a thought, which is the object of the sense. Awareness is present and you're aware that there is thinking in that moment. You go outside, it's a cold day, all right. cold night, it's going to get down to very, very cold tonight. So, you go outside, there's the cold air, there's the sense door of the body, there's contact of the body with the air. There is consciousness that is present, and this tactile consciousness, is awareness of the tactile sensation in that moment. So those three things that are there, the object, the sense door, consciousness present, contact takes place, and there is a perception of, of some kind that manifests within ourselves, which is called contact. And we live our life as a series of contacts, moment after moment. There is some kind of contact that takes place. You know, even when you're lying in bed and and your alarm rings, that could be the first contact that takes place. you know, or here it's the bell in the morning, you're lying there in blissful sleep, you know, not watching your breath, you know, just totally in unforgetful bliss, forgetful bliss, you know, you just and all of a sudden. Dong you know, That's the first contact that's there, okay? It's because to some degree awareness is present, there's the ear, there's the gong, and everything. All three coming together, manifesting as the contact. Our whole, whole life, all through the day, there's contact, there's contact, there's contact, there's contact. And a large part of our practice is being aware of that moment to moment contact and the arising of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, feeling, thinking, seeing, hearing, touching, thinking, feeling, that's going on moment to moment to moment. And when you're sitting in practice, you get to watch that on a quite a refined level because you're still, the mind is quiet, and you can see that whatever is the primary object that is arising within the mind. And certainly when you hear a sound, the mental recognition of that, it's considered to be a mind object, okay, because the sound is being perceived by the mind as sound. You know, the, when you taste something, this, this sensation that you're tasting is perceived by the mind as a certain kind of sensation, pleasant sensation, unpleasant sensation. It's happening all of the time, and what we're doing as the instructions have been given is to see whatever is the primary experience, right? So when you're aware of the breath and the sound appears, and that's the primary object, you're turning your attention to it, or a sensation in the body, so that you see that moment-to-moment arising and ceasing of contact taking place within the consciousness. The Buddha once said that contact is the cause of suffering. And it's not always the cause of suffering. It's only Contact only becomes the cause of suffering when there is some grasping, some clinging, some kind of attachment in the mind in relation to that particular contact that's taking place. And for instance, when you go to your mailbox and you pull out your mail, and there are three big monthly bills there. Okay? There's contact, and the moment you see the bills, you know, there's the arising usually of some kind of unpleasant sensation from that contact. So the contact is conditioning the feeling. That contact, visual contact, is conditioning a certain feeling within the mind. A feeling within the mind is an unpleasant feeling that arises in the mind. You know, especially at the Christmas when you see your Sears credit card payment, you know, whatever, it's like there's unpleasant feeling arises within the mind. Now, that contact becomes suffering when the mind grasps hold of that unpleasant feeling in the mind. When your mind grasps hold of the unpleasant feeling, then that gives rise to the suffering in the mind. But being a yogi as you go home now, you know, when there is that contact with the male, the bill is perfect equanimity within the mind. (laughs) You know, there's seeing, there's contact, unpleasant feeling arises, but the mind doesn't grasp hold of it because you're so close and aware when the unpleasant feeling arises within the mind that you're very careful not to grasp hold of the unpleasant feeling because you know from your experience here that that creates suffering. Whenever we grasp hold of something, then our relationship to whatever, to that feeling, to that object, becomes distorted, and we suffer in some way. It could be, for instance, when you go home and you return to your job, to your work, and there's somebody in your office that you, there's there's some kind of conflict inside between you and this other person. And so when you go to the office, or previously, you know, before you came on the retreat, whenever you see that person in the morning, it was like, it wasn't good morning, happy feeling inside, but, you know, let's try and make it through another day together kind of feeling. You know, because as soon as you saw that person contact or you heard their voice, sometimes you hear them before you see them. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you hear them before you see them. So, there's some kind of contact that takes place, then the contact, unpleasant feeling arising, and before you became enlightened here, you would grasp hold of the feeling, the contact, and it would give rise to feeling of some kind of suffering feeling inside of yourself, you know, like, oh, him again you know or fear or whatever kind of feeling suffering feeling might arise anger resentment because of what happened the day before or 2 weeks before whatever but now when you go home back to the office fully enlightened and once again your favorite person appears on the scene and there's contact even though some unpleasant feeling may arise in the mind you know and Even when you're enlightened, right, still unpleasant feelings can arise, unpleasant feelings can be there, but the mind is very knowing, aware, alert, does not grasp hold of those feelings, and as a result of that, there is a different relationship which you're forming not only to your own mind, but to this other person as well you know, in which you're not reacting to them in the same way, because internally you're not grasping, you're not clinging, you're not suffering, you're in a more free state, an open state, and therefore when you start to relate to them, there is... um, you start to see them differently. You're able to create more space within yourself, because you're not grasping, you're not clinging within yourself. And when you're not grasping and you're not clinging, and then a whole freedom opens up in terms of how you can relate to the person. You know, no longer are you in a state of fear or negativity, but rather when that's not there, then a whole new line of communication can open up. You give the other person a new chance in your life as well. So sometimes making contact (coughs) with what is disliked can cause suffering when there's the attachment within the mind. I think a a good example of that has been the weather um, during the retreat. I've spent a lot of time at Southern Dharma. I was here when these buildings were first being built and led the first retreat here and have taught New Year's retreats here before, have done self-retreats in the winter time. I've never seen weather like this before, (laughs) never. Someone said today, in an interview, we've seen every kind of weather here, except warm and sunshine. (laughs) We haven't experienced that. We've experienced lots of rain and lots of wind, like there was last night. And, uh, And a rather cold day today. Someone said today, in an interview, that when the wind was blowing last night, um, they experienced a lot of fear. They were really scared inside, right? There was contact with that weather. The wind was blowing. There's contact, it gives rise to certain feelings within ourselves. You know, being aware of that, because the weather can play when the weather moves to extremes. When the weather, you know, goes to extremes, then it can definitely cause suffering. And it's interesting to. Um, uh, to be in a retreat situation and try and maintain some balance within all of that. In Thailand it was the heat which was quite unbearable. And the Buddha used to talk about this a lot in the scriptures. He would talk about how the environment impinges upon the consciousness. And especially when you're in rudimentary conditions and this is not extremely rudimentary, I mean it depends. If you've got to go take a poop in the outhouse in the middle of the night, and it's 15 degrees, well, that can be extreme, <laughs> you know. uh, But imagine, like, a time of the Buddha when, you know, there was not central heating, <laughs> you know, get very, very cold in, in central part of India in the wintertime. And, in fact, people die of exposure. For instance, in Bihar State, in central India, you read about it in the nu- in newspapers when you're there in the wintertime. People don't have enough clothes. They don't have enough clothes, and as a result of it, they die of exposure. And they don't have enough wrapped around themselves to, to keep warm. And, uh, and, if, and if it's not the intense cold, then it's the intense heat. And it was that way in Thailand as well, um, where the first couple of hot seasons that you need to, that you're in, your body has to make a lot of adjustments to the intensity of the heat. It's even worse than living in the south here. And it's the same thing with the monsoon. If anybody wants to know what, the, what, a, what a monsoon is like, well, we had one in the last several days. That's, that's what the monsoon is like. It's constant rain. You get a couple of hours of sunshine. It starts pouring again. Everything is damp all of the time and gets mildewy after a while. And well, when you're living close, very close to nature, then the weather starts taking on a different kind of uh, effect upon the mind. Um, and the contact with it can create all kinds of feelings within ourselves. Very different than if we're nice and warm and cozy and snug inside of our home. You know, it's, it's essentially air-conditioned or heating or whatever. Then the contact of the weather doesn't create so much suffering. But when you're living very close to it, um, it can have that effect. And, which is one of the reasons why the ascetics um, people, for instance, the forest monks in the northeast of Thailand, Um, they would go on what's called Tudong. And Tudong is when you carry an umbrella. It's an umbrella in which you have a net over it. And all you have is your begging bowl and your grot, which is the umbrella with the net around it, um, a razor, and, um, and something to carry water in. And that's all the possessions that you have. And you walk from place to place. And you, stay, you live in caves, you live in abandoned places, huts, things like that. And this is kind of ascetic practice that has a long history in Thailand and is still practiced today. And, it's, and the, part of the reason that you do it is to get away from the comfort of your usual surroundings, which after a while you, you know, it becomes um, you become too satisfied and it becomes too easy. And if you want a challenge, then you go on Tudong, you know, and you don't have all of these comforts, and it's a very, very challenging kind of practice, you know, when it's raining, when it's cold, when it's hot, all of that kind of thing. And it, what it does is, it brings up states of mind, and that's one of the reasons why you do it. Ajahn Chah, one of my teachers who lived in the Northeast, within this Tudong tradition, he used to tell us about, during his time, Um, that, uh, in in the wilds of Thailand, there were still tigers, you know, and wild tigers and wild animals that could chew you and eat you up, you know. And they used to go go on Tudong in, in the forest then, and they'd be, at night, they would be sitting in meditation and they would be listening to the roar of the tigers, you know. And the fear would come up, and they, they intentionally put themselves in this kind of position so that they could experience the fear, experience the arising of the defilement within the mind, that they would have something to look at within themselves. You know, So, there are different ways of practicing, for sure. One time I lived in a cave in Thailand. Well, I, was, I did live in a cave, but this was another experience in which I was visiting a cave, so to speak. And it was far... <laughs> I was brought there by, a, by a, a former Thai student who was running from the government, <laughs> considered to be a communist, and he visited the, a temple that I was living in, in, in uh, northern Thailand. And he knew that I liked to live in caves, so he brought me to this cave that he was living in, that he spent time in. and. Uh, He. It was way. It was was like eight miles from the nearest village. We had to walk a long way to get. We had to take buses and then got to this village and then we had to walk back to this cave, which it was way, way up on top of a mountain. And he had a. And he was staying in another cave down by a river, which was about a mile away, half a mile to a mile away down below. And uh, so it was. I was, he showed me the cave, and I was kind of settling in for the night. It had a, he made a, a bed of bamboo, bamboo slots, and um, I was reading a book by a candle. And all of a sudden, I heard a scraping sound on the ground, and I looked through the, the slots of the cot, and there was this large boa constrictor, a very large boa constrictor. And there was contact. <laughs> There was contact, and there was immediate feeling. And the feeling was that my body leaped off of the cot. It it, it was just instinctual. There was no thinking involved at all. There there was no mind play in this. The body somehow went from the cot, from a, a a prone position to a standing position. And there was a staff next to me. And I grabbed the staff and went like this at it, you know. And, and I started to back off, and um, so it, it came out, it was a very large broken circuit. You want to know how large it was? <laughs> it gets bigger every time I tell the story. <laughs> Now, from here to that door, well, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit smaller than that. It was pretty wide, too. Bow constrictors they get real big, especially when they eat something. <laughs> they're known to eat large animals, usually not human beings, unless they're really hungry. <laughs> but they eat dogs. In the monastery, you know, someone was telling me one time, they saw a boa constricting the monastery, and they heard a dog yelp. And it wrapped itself around the dog and strangles it, you know, just wrapped it around the dog and crushed it and then they eat it, you know, just they eat it. And so I wasn't even quite sure what kind of snake it was. I mean, there are you know, lots of snakes in Thailand, so it's infested with snakes, but I wasn't quite sure what kind, of, what kind of snake it was, so anyway, I was there. And then it came out, you know, and it was looking at me like this. and. Then very slowly it turned around and it went back underneath the cot where it came from and <laughs> away, you know. And I realized that I may not be alone for the whole, you know, that that night. And so, um, you know, I said, "Well, what, what, what am I going to do now?" So I said, "Well, what I'll do is there was a ledge in the back of the cave. I couldn't leave the cave. There was no way that I could leave the cave because." It was at night. The, the, the way down to where this other guy was, it, was, it would be more dangerous you know, <laughs> going down to that other cave and staying where I was. And anyway, the, the, the snake might be out there. You know, so I decided I was going to stay inside. There was no way I could go, I could go down there. And uh, so I went to the back of the cave. It was, it was, a, it was a large cave very large, with a small opening to come into it. But once you get in, it was a big cave with a hole in the top of the roof. So I went to the back of the cage, and there was a ledge there. And I said, what I'll do is, I'll just, I'll just stay awake all night. (coughs) You know, it's going to get me, it's going to get me alive. It's not going to get me while I'm sleeping. (laughs) So I had this, I had one packet of candles. It had about 10 candles in it. And I put the candle out in front of me. And I lit the candle. And I sat in meditation, like this. And, believe me, I have never been so aware in my life. (laughs) You talk about a mind that's crystal clear and awake, this was it. I mean, I was so alert that if I had hair on my head, it would have been standing. You know, it was just, (laughs) i was any sound, you know, from anywhere, I would have heard. And when you're in a cave like that, it's very, very quiet. You can't hear. Things on the outside. It's, when you're living in a cave, it's very warm inside. If it's cold outside. In the cave, it's very warm. If it's hot outside, it's very cool inside of the cave. That's why they're such perfect places to live in. Is because it, they balance out the elements very well, and they're they're almost they're almost soundproof. Especially a cave like this. A cave has a big mouth in it. You know, then you can receive the impressions, sound impressions from the outside, but otherwise, it's very, very quiet, which makes meditation quite deep. And um, so there I am, and a candle would burn down, and I'd light another one. And then after, and after a while, um, I started to feel myself going to sleep a little bit. I wake up like that because I realized the situation. So again, I hear scraping sounds. <laughs> Alright. And this time the snake comes through the front entrance. I mean what a nerve. <laughs> comes through the front entrance. Which was a, and it was not a big front entrance. You had to crawl, you know, to get inside the cave through the hole because it was that small. But here it comes in. And it comes in and it's and it's coming right towards me and then it stops, you know, and it comes up like this and it's looking like this, you know, and I'm sitting there, contact, (laughs) feeling, (laughs) it wasn't pleasant feeling friends, let me tell you, unpleasant feeling, fear, fear, you know, and so it stayed there for a while, very, very slow, but the thing that amazed me was how mindful it was. (laughs) so mindful. I mean, it was going so slow, you know? And then I realized this is where he did his meditation. It was his his cave. It was his cave. I was the visitor. It was his cave, you know? He was wondering what I was doing there, you know? And so he, he, he was there for a while, and then he goes off, and he goes off to another side of the cave, right? So he came in the first time on this side, and then second time he came in on this side, and then he goes off this way, and there's a tunnel that goes off to the left, and so he goes down through the tunnel, and that's where he was going to spend the night. I don't know if there was an exit out of there to the outside or not. I wasn't about to crawl in and find out, you know. But that's where he went back into that side of the cave. So you know, again, you know, was perspiring, light <laughs> another candle, and I, uh, you know, I'm there, and I just. You know, the hours, are just going by, because the episode started about 9 o'clock in the evening, so it was a whole night to go through. And then, um, at the crack of dawn, I saw some light coming through the hole in the top of the cave, because there was that hole there, and that's how I knew that it was you know starting to become morning, and the light outside, because some of the light, a little bit of the light started to shine through. Compact. <laughs> Pleasant feeling. <laughs> yeah, light, the light of day. You know? So gather everything together you know, and go down the hill to where this uh, Thai student was staying. And I said to him, do you know what's up there? You know? And uh, he said, no, what? So I said, I told him it was a huge snake. And I said, did you ever see it? And uh, he said once he had seen the tail end of a snake, but he had never seen The whole stank, you know. So I don't know whether he decided to, you know, maintain that as his main residence after that or not. But that was definitely not where I was going to stay. (laughs) But it was a very good situation to see the arising of contact. And that's what a lot of the forest monks used to do. They used to, they used to, you know, be out in nature, in situations, in circumstances, where there would be unpredictable situations, to be aware of the feelings that arise within them. And we may find in our own practice, after a time, that this is what we wish to do. Not necessarily in nature, but reorienting our life in some way, where, you know, before it maybe had very very predictable, very comfortable, whatever, to placing ourselves in, you know, moving to a different place, doing a different kind of work. You know, um, doing service work, um, you know, going to another country, traveling, whatever, but placing ourselves in some different kind of situation just to see what arises, you know, to learn from that, from those experiences. <clears throat> So what happens when there is contact like that, when there's contact in the consciousness, and through one of the sense doors, it gives rise to a feeling, okay? The examples that I've been giving is unpleasant feeling in the mind. Unpleasant feeling arises within the mind as a result of the contact. And then from that unpleasant feeling, if there is a tendency for the mind to grasp hold of the feeling, of the unpleasant feeling. When the mind, when that feeling arises within the mind, that can be the very beginning of the formulation of the sense of I, the sense of me, within the consciousness. So as the feeling arises, almost inherent in the feeling, can be the sense of I, the sense of me. The, the, The sense of I and me definitely becomes more obvious when the the mind starts to grasp hold of the unpleasant feeling and then the sense of I, the sense of self, starts to become stronger in the mind. As a result of that, the clinging or the grasping of a hold of the feeling, for instance, when you experience fear, contact is feeling, unpleasant feeling. The mind grasps hold of the feeling and a f- feeling of fear arises within yourself. That sense of fear within itself oftentimes has the reflection of a sense of self, a sense of I, a sense of me, almost inherent with the feeling. The same thing with negativity, you know, this contact, this feeling, unpleasant feeling arising within the mind. When negativity starts to arise, then the feeling of self, of, of I, in relation to something else, you know, me in relation to the bills, me in relation to the weather, me in relation to this other person who I'm coming in contact with at the office, at the job, a sense of I, self in relation to something else, a kind of duality being created in the moment when the mind is grasping hold of the feelings that start to arise within us. So the sense of I, the sense of me, starting to formulate within the mind, sense of self solidifying, beginning to solidify within the consciousness. You now, there can be contact with what we like or something pleasant that can also cause suffering, not just contact with something unpleasant, but something that is pleasant or pleasurable as well within the mind. And there's two aspects to desire. And one is, passive aspect is craving, and the more active aspect of it is clinging. I, uh, one of my, just one of my weaknesses, <laughs> is chocolate. Okay, and um, uh, when I teach at the Insight Meditation Society, oftentimes people will bring me chocolate. Well, one retreat, nobody brought any chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I forgot my own stash. <laughs> we always stop off on the way up to Southern Dharma, right? At the Ingalls <laughs> Supermarket to get cookies and chocolate. <laughs> so, Anyway, I didn't have any chocolate on hand. And so I was staying in the teacher's room at the Insight Meditation Society. And Joseph Goldstein was one of the teachers at IMS. That's his residence when he's there during the three-month retreat, and oftentimes when he's not there. And he's also a chocolate lover, it just so happens. Um, and he had a nice box of Swiss chocolates in the room. And they were right behind me. And the box was open, no <laughs> less. I mean, it was so tempting. And every time I walked you know, to the desk, there would be the open box of chocolates, you know. so. I, uh, you know, was contact, pleasant feeling arising, and I was using restraint, you know, for a while anyway, and not taking in the chocolates, keeping in mind the precept of, n- you know, not taking that which is not given, you know, and I had given the precepts, so, you know, I want to make sure that I kept them, and, but there it was, and I, you know, it was a 10-day retreat, right, and day after day, I walk in, and there they are, so, Finally, one day, in a moment of weakness, I decided, well, they're there. I guess then that means that they're there for me, right? <laughs> I mean, especially if the box is open. <laughs> so, you know, it was this contact feeling, I took the chocolate, and I started, to ate some of the chocolates, you know. And it was interesting to watch my mind around it all. And so, I felt a little bit guilty about it. Not too much, but a little bit. <laughs> Enough to make it part of an evening discourse, anyway. At the retreat that I was giving, you know, that night. And uh, so I told the yogis about it. And, and it all passed, you know. That was a year before last. And then, then this past year, I went back to IMS to again give another retreat. And a lot of the same yogis came with chocolate. <laughs> you know, they didn't want me to break the precept. All right? So, they arrived with chocolates. There was chocolate everywhere. You know, at the beginning of the retreat, there was two boxes of chocolate. And then, this woman, a Thai woman, arrives with bonds. I mean, beautiful, lovely chocolates, you know. And you know, I was given to the staff, there was chocolate everywhere. It was so much suffering. You know, there was chocolate. There was, there was just too much chocolate to believe. And, um... You know, I, I not I told the yogis the you know, the whole story and what was happening. Attachment to sense pleasure. There's contact, this you know, there's something that we like, this pleasurable feeling that arises from that. The mind grasps hold to the pleasurable feeling, the sense of I, the sense of me, the sense of mine, oftentimes ar- arising in the moment of that contact. I mean it's the same with a sexual feeling, you know, is come to a retreat like this and um, we're all human, you know, you make contact with an interesting form, (laughs) an object (laughs) that's pleasurable to the eyes, right? There's contact, there's pleasurable feeling that arises, you know, um, a certain amount of grasping, clinging, taking place to the point, you know, where you write them a note or, You know, you start to imagine what it would be like to be with this person, you know. And uh, so, you're sitting in meditation and this contact, the image of this person arising in your mind, pleasurable feeling, sensations arising in the body. And the mind starts grasping hold of the sensations and the feelings. It starts giving rise to different thoughts in the mind of, hmm, what are the possibilities here? You know. Maybe a relationship, called call it a Vipassana romance,
1: <laughs> starts
0: to start evolving within the mind, where you start thinking about, you know, talking to this person after the retreat, you know, maybe going someplace, go to Trust, general store for a soda or something. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what could happen from there? <laughs> Wind up at Elmer's Inn. <laughs> You're sitting there, you know, and the days are going on, and the, the images keep arising. And you know, what are we going to get married? You know, how many kids are we going to have? You know, all of that kind of a full-blown Vipassana romance arising within the mind. Contact, feeling, craving, clinging. The mind just kind of building structures upon itself. All kinds of projections taking place out of the contact, out of the feelings that are arising within ourselves And grasping, the sense of I, the sense of me, the sense of of this other person, you know, the possibility, the reality of the situation, all this stuff starts building and growing with the grasping, whole of the feeling within the mind, the pleasurable feeling. You start to see it emerge and build and become something that is quite something to behold. Sometimes the attachment and the clinging is in relation to our views and opinions about things. And we all have views and opinions, preferences. I mean, uh, everybody had, most of us have views and opinions, but it's especially when there's an attachment to our views and our opinions is that, that causes um, uh, some kind of suffering. Especially, one can see it even in relation to... Um, Uh, how the retreat should be, how the meditation retreat should be. Um, In Southern Dharma here it's growing, expanding tremendously. Um, It used to be for a New Year's retreat like this, you'd get maybe 12 people, 15 people, 18 people, something like that, for the retreat. And um, some of you came during those days, those early days when it was a much smaller kind of retreat. And then, you know, you arrive this year on, uh, on the uh, on the 29th and you know, 40 people. A lot of people. You know, and there's that contact, you know, and then the retreat's going on. There's lots of people, lots of crowding, and it's not easy to move around gives rise to some unpleasant feelings within yourself and the view or the opinion that you have about the Southern Dharma and how you remember it to be and how it is right now that is a conflict that takes place within the mind, you know, because you were expecting it to be some other way, you know, and the view and the opinion within the mind is, you know, um, that it should be a smaller retreat, you know, or that the format should be different or whatever. And the mind grasps hold of that and there is some suffering. Suffering within the mind as a result of that. The third Zen patriarch, he says, the way is perfect, like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. Like neither, in the, in, in, like neither the entanglement of outer things. Excuse me. Live neither in the entanglement of outer things nor in the inner feelings of emptiness. Be serene in the oneness of things, and such erroneous views will disappear by themselves. When you try to stop the activity to achieve passivity, your very efforts fill you with activity. As long as you remain in one extreme or the other, you will never know oneness. Those who... Do not live in the single way fail in both activity and passivity, assertion and denial. To deny the reality of things is to miss their reality. The more you talk and think about it, the further astray you wander from the truth. Stop talking and thinking and there is nothing you will not be able to know. To return to the root is to find the meaning, but to pursue appearances is to miss the source. At the moment of inner enlightenment, there is a going beyond appearance and emptiness. The changes that appear to occur in the empty world we call real only because of our ignorance. Do not search for the truth, only cease cherish opinions. Do not search for the truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. Let go of the views, let go of the opinions, and the mind is much, much freer, much, much freer. So this very clearly, for instance, in Thailand, where amongst the Western monks, everyone was interpreting the Buddha's teachings, and everybody knew exactly what the Buddha was talking about, right? What the Buddha meant by such and such a thing that he said. You know, verified by my own experience in meditation. There was always these big debates going on: the Germans against the Americans, oftentimes <laughs> the German monks against the American monks. <laughs> there was something to watch, and the grasping, the clinging to the views and the opinions about it. You know, and what kind of that grasping, that clinging, what kind of suffering it created because of the mind holding on to a doctrine, making, trying to make that the reality. You know, the interpretation of the doctrine. There's a story once of the devil who was walking with his friend. Even the devil has a friend. (laughs) (laughs) The devil was walking down with his friend down the road and walking along. And all of a sudden, in, in the distance ahead of them, they see somebody stooping down to pick something up off the ground. And so, the friend says to the devil, you know, what is that? What is that he's picking up off the ground? And the devil says, um, it's the truth. And so the friend says to the devil, well, aren't you worried about that? And the devil says, nah. He says, he'll only make it into a belief. <laughs> 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 you know. It's, Well, we do. You know, when you grasp hold of an opinion, or a doctrine, or whatever, we don't know what the doctrine is, whether it be Christian or Buddhist, whatever, you you make that reality by grasping hold of it, It, you just make it into a belief of some kind. It's not the truth itself. Certainly the doctrine is not the truth itself. And the grasping mind creates that. So it's it's in the letting go, letting go of that tendency of the mind that puts us in a position where we can experience the actuality of things beyond the appearances, beyond the beliefs, beyond the opinions. And another attachment. If you wish to go, please, you don't have to stay. (laughs) Oops, I'm sorry. So another attachment is, has to do with views and opinions. There's contact, this feeling, there's craving, this kind. Of, again, the solidity of the sense of self, the solidity of the sense of I, of me. When you're in an argument, when you're holding on to an opinion or a belief of some kind, your view, can you feel the sense of self becoming stronger? You know, A sense of me, a sense of self, a sense of holding on the mind, this other person becoming an adversary in some way, you know, kind of electricity being set up between you and the other person, sense of distance, you know, all of that. Because of the, because of the attachment of the, the mind, the feelings, you know, all of that builds and builds, a sense of eyes, sense of self becoming stronger. That's why you see why this whole thing of Atta of self the buddha talked about atta as self and anatta as non-self or not the self you know and in when when you're in a state of atta of self oftentimes that that state of self is a suffering state when there's the, the attachment within the mind when there's the grasping within the mind very interesting to watch another area of attachment lies in the, in the way of of self-image and personality, and we've talked a lot, I have talked already about, when love is not strong enough within ourselves, when we don't have a secure feeling within ourselves, because of the self-love is not strong enough, how oftentimes we feel unworthy within ourselves, and not feeling confident, and, and not feeling very strong, and how oftentimes we look to other people to verify ourselves, you know, to tell us what to do, to tell us what is right, to tell us what is wrong. And sometimes I even sense this in the retreats when people ask questions, it's like they want to know, they want to know, like I have the right answer, and you don't have the right answer. You know, rather than relying more upon yourself, that when anyway, the sense of unworthiness within ourselves, when that becomes very strong, the attachment on the level of personality and, and self-image. Um, oftentimes not wanting people to, to see us for who we are because we're afraid that if they do see us for who we are, that in some way they will withdraw their love from us, they won't accept us. And that's a very painful position to be in because we always try to please other people, you know, try to fulfill um, um, uh, and act the way we think other people want us to act, so that we will feel accepted. You know, and the kind of grasping that takes place as a result of not really being ourselves, our true self. There's a, a beautiful story by Tittan Han, who told at the beginning of a meditation retreat, and I'd like to read it. It's called "Watering the Seeds in Ourselves." Once upon a time, there was a river finding her way among the hills, forests, and meadows, a beautiful river. The river began by being a joyful stream of water, a spring, always dancing, always singing, running down from the top of the mountain. This is a story all about river and clouds. She was very young at the time. As she came to the lowland, and as she came to the lowland, she slowed down. She was thinking of going to the ocean. As she grew up, she learned to look beautiful, winding gracefully among the hills and meadows. One day, she noticed the clouds within herself, clouds of all sorts of colors and forms. She did nothing during these days but chase after clouds. She wanted to possess a cloud, to have one for herself alone. But clouds always float and travel in the sky. They do not retain their form. Sometimes they look like an overcoat, sometimes like a horse. Because of the nature of impermanence within the clouds, The river suffered very much. Her pleasure, her joy, was chasing after clouds, one after another. You can imagine how hard it was for her. Despair, anger, and hatred filled the life of our river. One day, a strong wind came and chased away all the clouds in the sky. The sky became completely empty. Our river thought that life was not worth living. For there were no longer any clouds to chase after. She wanted to disappear from life. She wanted to commit suicide. If there are no clouds, why should I be alive? But how can a river commit suicide? That night, the river had the opportunity to go back to herself for the first time. She had been running for something outside of herself, namely clouds. She had never seen herself, never returned to herself. That night was the first opportunity for her to go back to herself. She could hear her own crying because water always emits sounds, the flapping sounds against the banks of the river. That has always been true. Because she was able to listen to her own voice, she discovered something quite important. She found out that clouds are nothing but water. Clouds come from water. And she was water within herself. She is nothing but water. Clouds are born from water and will return to water. That is what she found out. That insight made her stop her yearning for something else outside of herself. She realized that what she had been looking for is already in herself, is already herself. Looking at herself, she discovered her own roots. and She also saw the fruit of her present moment. Her roots are water, and her future will also be water. She saw that this is also the nature of clouds. The next morning, when the sun was in the sky, she discovered something wonderful. She saw the blue color of the sky for the first time. She had never seen it before. Now she knew that it had been there since her coming into being. Earlier she had been interested only in clouds and she was not yet capable of seeing the blue sky, which is a symbol of peace. Clouds are impermanent, but the blue sky is stable. She has had the immense sky within her heart since the very beginning. Discovering this fact brought her a lot of peace and happiness. The immense sky is the home of all the clouds. And she perceived the wonderful blue color of the the sky. She knew that her stability and her peace would never be lost again. That afternoon, all the clouds returned. But this time, she didn't have the desire to possess one particular cloud.